All right, if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. And if you're here, you're ready for the nitty gritty. This one's this one is the chapter. Whew. <laughs> Uh, this is uh, this has uh, some pretty big details, so uh, we're going to spend quite a bit of time uh, digging into this this chapter. Uh, by way of reminder, uh, you'll notice in Revelation chapter seventeen and verse one that you have a a declaration made that this is uh, I, how I would sum this up is let me give you even more details about this judgment that's about to fall chapter 17 verse 1 then one of the seven angels who are the seven bulls came to came and said to me come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. So so this is why I think this chapter goes a whole nother level deeper. We have noted like in chapters 12 and 13, we're really wide with the dragon is using the beast to make war on the people of God. Chapters 14 and 15 narrow it down a little bit and starts describing okay warning judgments uh were, were given but and fallen fallen is babylon uh but yet there's still not a response and so god is uh reaping the earth and and, and going to bring a judgment on on this nation chapters uh, chapter 16 gets even deeper than with that as it starts describing these bowls of wrath that are being poured out and the repetition in that section twice says, and yet the people did not repent. And at the end of chapter 16, uh, we noted that God is remembering Babylon the Great, which we talked about as the Roman Empire, uh, and is now causing its destruction. So it's interesting that chapter 17 opens and says, let me explain that to you even more. <laughs> let me give you uh, even more information about that. So hold that in your mind because I think that will be important uh, when we get to verses 8 and 9, uh, 7, 8, and 9, because it seems like it's trying to give us a, a little bit more about these things. I think one of the big questions that, that immediately arises that we're going to be looking at in chapter 17 is, well, then who is this great prostitute that's being described here? This is a new image for us. And in, in verse one, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is uh, seated on, on many waters. Now, I don't think it'll be too hard as we go through this, but it's an interesting picture. Just note already, though, if you're seated on many waters, what kind of symbol does that conjure up for you? If you're uh, this great prostitute seated on many waters, that... Okay, yeah, and so you're already getting a sense that uh, being seated on many waters would be something to the effect of uh, ruling over many lands, many nations, many kings. Uh, it's it's not a very small thing, but a, a lot of authority and power is being described uh, for this great prostitute. <clears throat> Verse 3, And he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, that was full of blasphemous, blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and, and ten horns. All right, does that beast sound familiar? Revelation 13. Okay, so here is the scarlet beast that has seven heads and ten horns. Well, that's, that's the same description of what we saw earlier in chapter 13. There is this 
beast with seven heads and ten horns that's rising up out of out of the sea and that's by the work of the dragon and its whole purpose is to make war on the people of God and we talked about back in chapter 13 that one of the few points of consistency and agreement is that this beast is the Roman Empire so uh, we are still looking at the same thing here is that here is this beast being described again now again i want you to see that would make sense that even though chapter 16 described its end chapter 17 the angel comes along and says let me show you more about this judgment so that's why you have to be careful about not just running you know well and after chapter 15 the events of chapter 16 and after chapter 16 the events of chapter 17 well no in chapter 17 he's saying i'm going to reverse it a bit, little bit and tell you some more about those things. And so I think that's why um, we're seeing that beast described uh, here again. But notice the focal point moves to the woman in verse four. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes, of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk on the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of of Jesus. All right, so let's start with her description. She's dressed in purple and scarlet. So what does that tell you about her? Regal prostitute of sorts is kind of a strange image, right? Here is this great prostitute, but... You have royalty image <clears throat> that's uh, being referred to here when you speak of them being uh, arrayed in purple and and scarlet. If you studied uh, much of those first century things, you know that purple was a little bit of a rarity and therefore reserved typically for kings and leaders and rulers and powers and thing, things like that. So you're seeing the woman adorned in that way. Same thing with the clothing and, and the, the jewelry, gold and jewels and, and pearls. What's on her forehead? Her, on her forehead is the name Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes. <laughs> That's quite a visual. <laughs> you know, here, okay, here is this beast and riding on the beast is this prostitute and the prostitute is wearing these royal garments and inscribed on her forehead is the description Babylon the, the Great. All right. Have we seen that term Babylon the Great before? All right. We, we've seen that back in chapter 14, back in chapter 16. Uh, that description has already been used as a title before. And when we were in those chapters, it was pretty evident that we were still talking about the the Roman Empire. So one of the things that I want you to notice as you look at those first six verses and the description is full of abominations, full of sexual immorality, drunk on the blood of the saints, is sometimes people will will work really hard to say, well, the beast must be entirely separate from the woman. And the woman is a different thing and the, and the beast is a different thing. And that, to me, that's really hard to do because all of the images and descriptions are overlapping. Um, what's described of her has also been described of the beast. It's, she's also given the same title, Babylon the Great. She's also described as drunk on the sexual immorality and the saints well we've seen that description of the beast as well so i don't know that the point of this chapter is to say 
Now, let me identify specific particular different nations or kings or something like that. But really just trying to give you a very full picture of how bad this beast is, how bad and evil this Roman Empire is. That everywhere you turn and looking at it, whether you're talking about the empire itself, whether you're talking about the emperors themselves, whether you're talking about the idolatry or the religious things that were going on there or the paganism, all of it is just bound together as standing as an affront against God and desiring to destroy the people of God which connects to chapter 12. That's the goal of of the dragon. So uh, I'll be happy to take your questions or thoughts about those first six verses and that you're seeing these two tied together. And when we get to chapter seven, end of chapter 17, which will not be today, uh, you'll see that underscored all the more in the description that's given to her. It says that she has dominion over the kings of the earth. Well, again, that has to be the Roman Empire because who else has dominion over the kings of the earth in the first century? Nobody else. They do. Uh, So to me, that's a very big deal. Now, one of the reasons I I bring that up is when when we went through the front half of the book, I was showing you that I saw Jerusalem as the primary object of God's wrath. And those who see it that way will often come to chapter 17 and say, while the beast is the Roman Empire, the woman is Jerusalem. And I'm showing you why I don't think so. (laughs) Because her title is Babylon the Great. She seems to be in control of the Roman Empire, riding around on it. She is described as having royalty. She is described as uh, having dominion over the kings of the earth. Those are not things that you could point to first century Jerusalem and say they don't have authority over anybody. Uh, They can't do anything. They are completely under the thumb of the Roman Empire, which is clear when you read the Gospels. And that's why you even have zealots and all that going on in the first century is they're trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. They're not in charge of it. They're standing against it, wanting its fall. And usually what will happen is the argument will be made, well, in the days of Solomon, you see the power of Jerusalem and Israel. And I will say, yeah, that's great, except that was a thousand years before this was written. I don't think anybody, any Christian in the first century would have read, you know, here is this woman that has authority over the kings of the earth and said, that's Jerusalem. I don't think anybody would have heard that. So that's why... I'm showing you, I think, the woman and the beast strongly connected together as just depicting all facets of the Roman Empire that need to be destroyed. Questions, concerns, rebukes, thoughts, whatever you've got. Are you good with that? <clears throat> all right, because now you're going to roll up your sleeves if you're, if you're good with that. You sure? All right, never going to answer your questions again. All right, we're, we're done with it. <clears throat> just kidding. Verse, verse 7, or the end of verse 6. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. So imagine, this is kind of like how Daniel sees the beast in in Daniel 7 and goes, what am I looking at? What is this trying to communicate? Verse 7, the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Great, that's what we're sitting there talking about, right? This is is what what we're trying to understand. So here's here's the answer. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit 
and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for the mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh and goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. There's your answer. So clear, you know, lays it all out beautifully. Dennis? Before we get too far away from it, the rest of verse 5, must just my Yeah, yeah. Mine reads Earth's abominations. So, yeah, same idea is that the they are in charge of the things that are going on over the earth, the wickedness over. And again, it requires some kind of world empire view to say the abominations of the earth are hung on the head of this woman. You know, you can't have some small entity and go, yeah, they're they're the problem over all the earth's sins and wickedness. It has to be somebody big. As a, to me, the Roman Empire just it smacks you in the face. This must be Rome. This must be the whole of the empire. It must be all that's going on for these kinds of descriptions. Never mind that Babylon the Great is used to describe a world power. Babylon's terminology is always that, that imagery. So who's the world power? And that seems to be what we have here. Debbie, you got all the answers for chapter 17. Here we go. <laughs> Seven mountains. Yep. So again, we're seeing some things that clue us into a Rome, Rome and Roman Empire. Uh, and you see that in, in, in verse, verse 9. Uh, this calls for a mind of wisdom or understanding the seven heads or seven hills or seven mountains, depending upon your translation. And uh, uh, in that day and time, Rome was pretty renowned for being called the, the city that sits on seven hills or, or seven mountains. So it's another little point where you're like, this seems to be really focusing on uh, Rome and the Roman Empire. When you look at verse 8, you'll notice that a little bit more description about the beast, though we've seen some of this before. This beast that was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit, or some translations, the abyss. Uh, I, I want to remind you that we've, we've seen that description again back in chapter 9, uh, we saw locusts coming out of the abyss by the power of uh, the one who is called Abaddon. Uh, we, we saw we saw that, and I made note to you there that here is uh, Satan using the Roman Empire as uh, as the power to bring about uh, pain and suffering and judgment in chapter nine on uh, Jerusalem, as as God had uh, predicted. And then you notice the strange phrase that goes that goes with it. Uh, you saw it was, it is not, and it is about to rise from destruction. Now, 
The reason I put on the screen connecting to chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, because it doesn't say that there. Then chapter 9, 2, and 3 is coming out of the abyss. But in chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, you have a very strange picture about this, this beast. You have this beast rises up. It's pretty phenomenal. It, it, there's awe and wonder. And you remember it says that it takes, uh, in one of its heads, it takes a fatal wound. And you would think, okay, fatal wound means you die, right? That a mortal wound. <laughs> if you say somebody takes a fatal wound, it's fatal. And yet what the rest of it says is, however, it doesn't die. It continues to go on. It seems to be healed of the fatal wound, which causes all the nations to all the more worship the beast and say, who is like the beast? And I would draw that to what's being said here. It was... And then it is not, takes the fatal wound. Seems like it's done for. It's on the ropes. It's about to about to fall. But it doesn't fall. It's healed of the mortal wound and continues on even stronger and better than ever. And that seems to be what was, is not. And then it is again or about to rise again to me seems to be the idea. And in chapter 13 we saw that I mentioned to you that I believe the idea is you have the Roman Empire in its power and might, and then you hit a window of time where the Roman Empire falters pretty strongly. We're going to look at that in just a minute. There is the year of seven emperors. <laughs> and you imagine having seven presidents in one year. I mean, sorry, four. The year of four emperors. Sorry, four emperors. And you imagine four presidents in a single year. That'd be pretty chaotic. Uh, and then after that, it kind of re-solidifies and it becomes strong again and arguably even strong, stronger than before. And I think that's the idea of the image is that while it looks like it's going to be on the ropes and not survive, don't be fooled. It's going to be just fine and it's going to continue on. So the fatal wound that's healed was, then is not, but then rises again out of, out of the abyss. Okay. Questions about verse 8 or ideas about that? But that's what, to me, it connects up with chapter 13 and continues to underscore who this beast is. It's the same one. It's showing strength. It's going to lose its strength, and then it's going to return again just as strong or even more so. All right, Debbie told us verse 9, absolutely. I think Rome is the one that we are looking at. Now, here's what is really interesting about verse 9. <clears throat> this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, if it stopped right there, you would go, okay, just another, you know, pin marker to say Roman Empire, right? City on seven hills. Okay. But notice what it does next. It says, these are seven kings. And you go, okay. And then it goes even more. And it says, five have fallen. One is. And then there's another that's to come. And it's only going to remain for a little while. So what do you want to do with that? <laughs> Debbie? <laughs> you, you kind of feel like you need to assert some details here. So let me talk about that for a minute is because there are these details, this seems to me to be the second time in the book 
where you're not just simply taking a broad symbol, but the book is trying to say to you, I want you to dig a little deeper and drill down a little bit. And I made the same point to you when we were talking about the seven churches of Asia. When we started the study, I said, here are seven churches of Asia. Now, in, in symbolism in the Bible, seven represents what symbolically? Perfection. Perfection. So why don't we just read that the seven churches of Asia are not seven literal churches, but are actually just a symbol for all the different churches that have ever existed? What makes us not do that? The names and details, right? If you just wanted it broad, you would just say, hey, seven churches. And we'd go, okay, that represents all that. But then all of a sudden he goes, Ephesus and Sardis. And you're like, oh, whoa, wait, okay. Uh, we must be actually talking about something. I think the same thing's happening here. Because it is curious that he says, all right, here is this beast that was, is, is not, and will rise again. It's the city that's on seven hills, and the seven hills are seven kings. And if you put the period there, I'd go, all right, this represents all the wicked kings of Rome. It's, it's, it's very broad-based and all that. But then all of a sudden it says, five have fallen. All right, you just gave me a detail. One is. One's yet to come. And then the next verse, and then you have an eighth. That is like the seventh that goes to destruction. And so I feel like I'm required here to apply more detail because it's giving me details. And I would submit to you that makes some sense because what did the first two verses of chapter 17 say we were doing? Let me show you the details of this judgment that's about to happen on the Roman Empire. It seems to be the whole purpose of this chapter is to drill down a little bit more. So rather than just saying seven kings and walk away from it, he gives you a lot of details. Five have fallen, one is, one's yet to come, and there's an eighth. And you're going to go, okay, well, I feel like I need to be doing something with with this information. In fact, he even says this calls for a mind of wisdom. All right, so before I do that with you, questions or confusion or anything about that, but I've always been struck by it stopping right there and saying, I want to tell you more, and then he starts counting. And you go, why are you counting if it's just a big picture? Except it's more than that, is what I think. Okay? This would say to you then, this is only two times where I think the symbolism is saying, let's get really nitty gritty about what I'm trying to point to. You good? I know today's a lot. I hope you got enough sleep. I didn't. Hope you did. All right. I'm going to do three different ways to look at this text. And if you don't like any of the three, that's fine. (laughs) But these are the three options to me that make sense of how to deal with this is that most people will come to this and go, because of the counting, we need to count kings. Let's, let's count the emperors and let's see how it all plays out. So here is one way that I think you could go about doing this, is if you start counting off your emperors, here are your five who have fallen. Boom, 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 boom. So, all right, Nero's gone. So all I did was I went on Wikipedia and there's your five, right? You know, trusted source of all knowledge. <laughs> people will say why not julius well i though sometimes called an emperor there's a pretty big gap between julius and augustus 
I don't think he would be right to be counted as that. Uh, you have the formation. I mean, you want to do your own Roman history on this, you can. But you're, you're forming the Republic at this time into what Julius is building it into. But Augustus seems to be the one. By the way, if you're looking at it was because I needed two columns. The 27 is not 27 AD. I'm not going the wrong way with that. 27 BC to 14 AD. So, but if I put BC in there, ruin the second column. So I couldn't get to all fit in there. That would mean the one who is would be this guy. And now we're in this stage where we have the four emperors in in one year. And so one way to look at this is to say five have fallen, one is, that would be Galba, and then the one who, it's, who is to come, you will notice that verse 9 says, the other who has not come, and when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. It is interesting that number seven, the one to come, look how long he lasted. <laughs> he barely got in there and then he's out again. And by the way, there not, these are not natural deaths that are happening. <laughs> They're all killing each other to try to take, take the throne at, at, at this point. Uh, so you have in 69 Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, and all of that infighting is, is going on. At this very time, Vespasian is attacking Jerusalem and has it surrounded. And his, his army say, you ought to go back to Rome and solidify the throne and be emperor. And that's exactly what he does. So when he becomes the fourth one in 69, he goes back, puts down the others and says, I'm in charge around here. Sends his son Titus and he finishes the job against Jerusalem in 70 AD. Here's the 10, if you, or I'll give you 11 if you want. But I would summarize one possible way to read this is that what this text is saying is Galba's on the throne right now. The one that's coming after him is going to only remain for a little while. They're all going to hardly last and then go to destruction as well, which to me would fit what verse 8 is doing. Here is the was, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, the beast that was. Is not right now. Total upheaval. Four emperors. But then is going to rise again. Number nine. Vespasian, Titus, Domitian, the emperor, empire restores. And you have successive emperors after that. Don't have to agree with it, but just to put it out there, here's a possible way to break that down. Charlotte? Does this, with the writing of the book of Revelation, for me it does this is one of the texts that tells me that this was written not in the 90s but the one who is is sitting here in the late 60s now that would probably be required for all the work that we've done up to this point from chapter 6 through 11, I said we were talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which wouldn't make a lot of sense to write about 30 years after the fact. So, yeah, I think it is an early date, though I don't interpret it like most early date people. I think I think if, if with this point of view, then is would put you at 68 or 69 AD when this is written. Sounds like it's going to happen right 
Exactly. To me, it makes a lot of sense to have it written in in the late 60s because you have Jerusalem's imminent fall. So you're preparing the people for that. Plus, you're having the imminent instability of the Roman Empire that's about to happen at that time. And so that it will not cause the Christians to think, okay, it's going to be smooth sailing. No, it, 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 it was, it is not right now, but it's going to be again. It's going to have this fatal wound, but it's not going to die. That fatal wound's going to be healed, and it's going to continue to destroy the people of God. So again, that's, I think, what that chapter 13 is doing with that image of the head of that beast being a mortal wound and yet somehow coming back to life. What is it trying to say about the empire that would impact the people of the first century? You know, somehow this has to matter to them to tell them all of this. This is view one, all right? If you don't like it, I got another one for you. All right, let's try again. <laughs> one thing that's interesting is that we've talked a lot about how Revelation is really closely tied to the book of Daniel. I want to show you something interesting in the book of Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7. Uh, Just as a kind of a quick refresh, if you just scan your eyes at verses 8 and 9, this is when you have this fourth terrifying beast. You will notice it also has ten horns, and the horns are all speaking blasphemous words. And you have uh, Daniel wanting to know more about this, this fourth terrifying beast Verse 23, here is the explanation in Daniel 7, 23. For thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it in pieces. So notice we've got this fourth kingdom, fourth empire, Roman empire again in your count. You have Babylon and then you have Persia and then you have Greece and then you have Rome. So there's your number four. That fits Daniel 2. In the days of the fourth kingdom, you have God's kingdom coming and being established. So that puts you in the first century. Verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and shall be different than the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. And he shall speak words against the Most High and wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So it's interesting that Daniel, he does a count and says there's actually ten, but three of them get uprooted by the other horn. All right. So let me give you possibility number, number two. Here are our five who have fallen. And now it tells us one is. Daniel could be telling us, let's not worry about these three guys because they hardly stick around for a cup of tea. Uh, They're not worthy of consideration. They're uprooted, if you will, symbolically by Vespasian. So that would make him the one that is. And then the one who is yet to come, but only for a little while after him would be his son. And you will notice 
he only lasts less than three years. So maybe that's who we're pointing to as the one who is only for a little while. What makes this view fascinating is that then the next thing that Revelation 17 says is there is this eighth and he is like the rest, but will go to destruction. Well, guess who number eight would be? Domitian. And he was a crazy dude. <laughs> He's often associated with Nero in terms of uh, wackadoo, in terms of uh, sanity and what he would do for the Roman Empire at that time. And you'll notice he lasts a really long time like, like Nero did as well. So if we wanted to do the count this way, then we would count it off like this. That the author is saying Vespasian is, Titus is going to be for just a little while. But then Domitian is going to come and he is going to be like the rest. Well, what does it mean to be like the rest? Well, if we use Daniel as well as Revelation 13, the rest would be speaking blasphemies against God, calling themselves sons of God, demanding worship of themselves and worship of idols. I'd have to double check if it was Ephesus. I think it was in Ephesus. There was a massive statue to Domitian in his days that was erected for worship. I'd have to remember which city that was, but I think it was Ephesus. So this would be possibility too, is if you don't want to, if you want to uproot three kings like Daniel has, it would be logical to uproot those three because Vespasian kind of resets the stage and becomes emperor again. Possibility number two. You ready for number three? Or are you saying, I just didn't even sign up for this. This is so much. (coughs) All right. Number three, I'll put all the five up there again. Five have fallen. One is, one's yet to come. The eighth is like the seven, but he goes to destruction as well. And we could just keep it a little bit broader and just say the idea of what this is saying is that five have fallen. One is... More are yet to come, but they're going to be like the others, is that this is going to be the ebb and flow of the Roman empires. You're going to see a time of power, and they're going to use it against the people of God. You're going to see their power retract for a while, and then their power is going to come back again, and they're going to use it against the people of God again. And you can certainly trace that in the history of the Roman Empire. Some emperors are going to arise, and they're not going to care about Christianity. They're going to leave everybody alone. I even read that to you, what was about a month ago or so, Pliny writes to Trajan. Trajan says, you know, we don't want you going around trying to figure out who's a Christian and who's not a Christian. That's not how we're going to run things around here. Just let it be. If you know who one is, then run your trials, but we're not going to try to flesh it out. And that's in early 180. So that'd be a possibility, is that you're saying some of the emperors are going to be problems and some of them are not. They are, they are not, they are, <laughs> was, is, and is, is to come. Charlotte? What does Diocletian have to do? He's in the 200s, and he's one of the worst. He's one of the worst. Diocletian is around 230, if I remember right, maybe a little bit later than that. Uh, he even puts out an edict, if you possess, possess the scriptures, you would be executed. So it's going to get worse, for sure. So what I'm going to put before you is this. I even vacillate between these three options, but to me these are the three options that make the most sense of what chapter 17 is trying to do. Let me give you the details about this this judgment that's going to come upon the beast. Here's what's already happened. 
here's the way things are. Here's what's going to happen. And where you want to count the emperors, fine. <laughs> I think it kind of works out the same way. Presently, if you want to know where do you stand right now, I'd probably be on the second one right now. Is that you have three uprooted, so Vespasian's the one. So here you are in mid-69, which means you're only a year away from the fall of Jerusalem. And so there's intensity to that letter. And the ones who are coming after him are going to be the worst. And to me, that really clicks in with verse 11. As for the beast that was and is not, it is the eighth, but it belongs with the seventh and goes to destruction. That Domitian is going to be not good and uh, be like Nero and cause a lot of problems, not only generally for the empire, but even somewhat for Christians as, as, as well. Dane? Yeah. As we read Revelation, we have to, there's a couple of things that um, sometimes you see a lot that uh, religion in general tends to want to stress about it, and then we get lost in what's with the 2,000 years after the destruction of right. Jerusalem and stuff like that. And then we try to piece our over Exactly. The key thing coming out of this is, is that one, whichever way you take the kings, and I, I kind of like it, but the second one is kind of where I tend to settle. Because the idea is, is it's always God giving a warning. And we know that going all the way back to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. Yeah. While Rome will be judged, Jerusalem will be destroyed. Yep. And that's what Jesus talked about. That's right. Jerusalem will be destroyed. It's going to coincide. It's going to come first and then Rome with persecutor will fall. The, the deal is, is just remember that doesn't necessarily mean that that's where the Bible, well, the Bible stops talking, but at the same time, it's not like, oh, okay, there is these thousand years and I don't want to push that to fact that we're going to get to 20 and 21 is like, and then we get into all of these things to right. try and wrap the end of Rome with what's happening now. It's like, that's not the point. The point yep. was, Jesus prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's going to come. Yep. Rome will fall eventually. That's right. The great persecutor of Jerusalem. It is. And that's one of the things that the book of Daniel, as well as other prophets talk about, and Daniel especially zeroes in on that, is the need for Rome to fall because it has also been a persecutor and a problem and has uh, judged judge the people of God. Yep. Well, I was just thinking, what if the hero of the 1869, the the trouble trying to figure out when John was exiled is we have only one writer outside of the scriptures who talks about it and he simply says and the tyrant exiled John to an island I don't know if he names Patmos or not but that's the tyrant all right yeah so <laughs> who's your tyrant and so some will say Nero some will say Domitian some you know who's who's the tyrant well man there's a lot of that's a pretty wide range of possibilities as to who's the tyrant in that day and time uh, Nero would be a possibility because Nero would put him on the island. Then he has the vision and now starts writing in 69. That's never made sense for me to be 80 or 90 years old. I mean, yeah. if he were, you know, he's got to be near the Christ age. Yeah. And maybe, he wasn't 10 when he was Yeah, a lot of people do, don't think about that. Is if, if the letter is written in 90, Revelation's written in 96. 
that's a really, really old John. <laughs> you know, it really does make him old because, right, you know, you, you can't have him as 10 years old in 30 AD. So, yeah, yeah good point. Mike, did you have something there? Yeah, so I don't know why we, you know, I'm guilty of this and why we do this book. Not that we don't do it with all books, but we meet somebody off the street and want to talk to you about Revelation 17. Is, yeah. Have you read the first 16 chapters? No, there's only a few things we want to pick you up. <laughs> because that's that's the tendency of this book. Yeah. And then the other thing too, like Dana mentioned, we're so far removed from this benchmark yes. of crushing Christianity and, and even though we read it, we don't know what that looks yeah. like. And I don't know that we'll ever have a grasp or understanding of you know what that was. No. I do think there's some important things to think about with what God is doing with this. First of all, I, I don't believe that Christians of the first century had a question about what this was saying. I think they read that and went, got it. Our problem is we're 2,000 years removed. And so trying to recreate and go backward and go, okay, well, what would that have meant to them? Well, obviously, this stuff would have been very obvious to them and very real to them without any difficulty. I think they would have clicked in right away. Our, our, the struggle is on us, not, not for them or, or with God. But second, I think one of the things that's really fascinating about the details is similar to Daniel 7, is when you have God giving the details like this, it really reminds you of the absolute sovereignty of God. Who is in charge of the Roman Empire's existence? Man, God is, because he's just clicking it off right here. Here's how it's all going to go down, and here's who's already gone, and here's who is, and Here's what's going to come, and then it's going to go to destruction, and here's the ten horns, and here, I mean, it's, why is he doing all of that? It's not to be a ball of confusion, but to show the precision by which God is moving his finger over all of this. This book is written to Christians who are going through suffering. Remember those first couple of chapters? What's said to the seven churches of Asia? You're going to go through tribulation. You're going to be imprisoned. You need to be having endurance to be able to conquer this. Well, what's going to give you endurance that's being called for them when there's being told they're going to die for the cause of Christ? That God has absolute control and knows exactly who all of these leaders are, how long they're going to exist, and when they're going to go. I mean, to me, that's part of the power of saying five have fallen, one is, and the next one, the one that's to come, will only remain for a little while. Well, who would know that? Only God would, because God's in charge of how long they're going to sit there. And that's a really important reminder for us, as God is in full charge of who's in charge and how long they're in charge. He causes rise and fall of kingdoms and nations and leaders and kings. That's what Daniel 4 is exploding. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar, look at me, my great kingdom, my great power. God goes, let's teach him a lesson. (laughs) Uh, You're only on the throne because I say so is the, the big point. And Nebuchadnezzar gets to go eat grass in the backyard of his palace until he comes to his senses and realizes that it's the God of heaven who is in charge of these things. And to me, this is underscoring that. Why go through all the details? To us, we're so removed. And it does, we're like, okay, who cares? It's too detailed. But for them, this is telling you God knows who's next and what he's going to do about it and how long they're going to reign. And you can have endurance because he's got control of that. Dave? To add to your point, David, it's a comfort for us as we read. 
That's right. He doesn't write and tell us how the United States or Russia right. or Ukraine. He doesn't write about that. Right. But he, he reminds us that as we read, the power that he demonstrated then still exists today. So yeah. we just have to stay faithful and trust him. He That's knows right. what's happening here and he's in control of it. That's right. And this is really, really important. And I hope one of the big lessons you'll get out of this is if you were a Christian in the first century, you'd be like, yeah, but but Lord, Nero is really awful and he is a nutcase. I mean, a total nutcase. He And you want to talk about depravity and wickedness and awful? You want to talk about pedophile and, and awful sexual morality and the terrible? He was so terrible that finally his own guards kill him. <laughs> How bad do you have to be? They finally just go, we've had enough of this guy. 14 years, we're done. No more. We, we're, we're, we, we've had it. And you're still having the scripture say, and in the face of that, be a Christian. Submit to your government. Still do right. Put your hope in heaven. Don't live for this world. Don't get caught up in the affairs of these things because God's in control of all of it. Wherever this is written and whoever's on the throne, God is saying, I've got full charge. And we too often come along right now in our world and just, you know, have an outright panic attack over who's in charge and what's going on. Stop it. God's in charge. You don't have to worry about that. You just be a Christian. You just do what's right. You just keep loving God and submit to everyone. That's what he's telling the people in the days of Revelation to do. Do you think it was harder for them? I think so. I think it was way harder for them. Look at what they're about to go through. <laughs> Look at what they're enduring. Look who's in charge. Look who's going to be in charge. <laughs> and I think that's the whole point. You can endure. Yeah, more crazy's coming. That's all right. It was and it is not. Here's your breather. But it's going to rise up again. It's going to keep going. All right, good with that? All right, you get two weeks to digest that. Lord willing, I'm going to take a vacation next week because I need it after that, right? <laughs> It'll give you some time to digest chapter 17. Um, to, for, for Dathan's sanity, I'm not going to make him pick up right there. <laughs> and here, Dathan, go ahead and teach the next part of Revelation 17. So as we've done while I'm gone, uh, we will go back to our psalm study which is Psalm 92 and 93. And if you're wanting a full workbook, those are available online. If you want just the next couple of Psalms, they're right here in a, in a, on a paper that you can take notes on. And that gives you two weeks, two weeks from now, I'll be back and I'll say, okay, give me all your questions about what you thought about. All right, 15 minute break. We'll reconvene at 1030.